you'd love to hear my conversation with your fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about his process and how he predicts central bank actions. We focus on the Bank of Canada and what's likely to come out of them next. And finally, he touches on how our fixed income team is positioning their portfolios. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Dustin Reed. Uh, Dustin is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Dustin, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much for having me back, Matt. Uh, uh, yesterday, the Fed had a uh, their uh, their rate meeting, uh, and as expected, they raised their interest rate by seventy five basis points. Dustin, uh, take me through what you thought about the Fed meeting uh, and get into some of the details that you heard from uh, from Powell himself. Sure, absolutely. So the Fed did seventy five uh, this week. At generally expected, the market was going in maybe around. 79 or 80 basis points. So a small probability of doing 100. And there was definitely some risk around 100. Uh, 50, 50 basis points didn't really ever look like a like a risk right. on the, the left side tail risk, so to speak. So yeah, so we got 75. And uh, being September, it's a forecast meeting. So we got the, the new estimates, including the, the dot plot, so to speak, as well as, you know, what the Fed's thinking on uh, inflation and uh, growth and uh, the employment market, unemployment or labor market. Uh, so we got we got all of that. So to kind of unpack, all of that. Um, I, I would say that the Fed, the Fed moved its its terminal rate uh, higher, so so the end point of the cycle to uh, 4.625, which was a significant increase over the um, uh, over the uh, 3.8% uh, in the round that it was at at the June meeting. And and I think a lot of people expected it to come higher, but uh, not a lot of people expected it to get quite that high. Um, right. So not not a huge not a huge surprise to us, and it may never get there. Of course, I mean this these are estimates, and it's the way it's put together is very much, you know, a, a sum of parts estimates. So it may it may never get there, but you know that's that's pretty that's pretty uh, comforting to us. And so that's a four point six two five next year in twenty three, uh, expecting to go to uh, around four point four, a little under four point three seven five to be fair, by the end of this year. So the Fed in a way is kind of scripting out the next three meetings, whereby it's looking like seventy. 50 and 25 for the November, uh, December, and then I guess technically February. So I think it's a February 1st meeting um, in 23, kind of consecutively or respectively, I should say. So that's kind of where the Fed is at. And I, I don't I don't really disagree with that. I think that that's fair. Um, you know, if, if people ask me, where's the risks, I still continue to believe that risks are on the upside to that uh, in the high fours or, or even a five handle. I think obviously how inflation and um, and the labor market uh, evolve will, will clearly be a significant portion of how that uh, gets dictated going forward. So not, not, not massive surprises there. The statement itself, the formal statement, yes. barely changed from uh, the end of July. So so not, not a lot to play on. And I think, again, that's, that is accurate. Which is kind of what saying to the team, you know, kind of in the in the real time and aftermath. Not a lot has changed. I mean, everything is kind of the same. Inflation is still hot, as we know. Right. We talked about this last week. You know, great discussion, and the labor market's still tight. I mean, even some of the smaller B tier data this week would suggest that uh, the labor market continues to be even hotter than where it was a couple of weeks ago, just from the jobless claims data. So, you know, 
nothing has changed in terms of like a tectonic change. So I think that that, you know, not changing anything material in terms of the language and the statement is very, is very accurate. The press conference, which everybody was obviously very, very focused on, um, was interesting in some way. Uh, Powell usually does a, a, a another uh, opening statement for th- three, four or five minutes, so to speak. And he so- somewhat surprisingly to me used some language that he used at the end of July, which I was, uh, I'm frankly shocked that he used, which was basically uh, the quote, at some point, we, uh, we know we will have to, or at some point we will uh, slow the pace of, of rate hikes. And this at some point language was really what got them, I would say, in trouble, for lack of a better term, after the July FOMC, because the markets uh, you know, ripped, you know, equities ripped higher, financial conditions loosened a lot after having loosened significantly since the June meeting, and that is not the directionality where the Fed wants financial conditions uh, to go. So it was interesting because he said that, and markets once again this week <laughs> took off on the same horse. Um, and you almost wonder if he had some sort of alert uh, in some fashion, because when he took the first question in Q and A, he listened to the question from the journalist and. You know, before answering, basically said, I want to reiterate, there has been no change in our view from Jackson Hole um, to basically right. you know, tamp down the idea that there has been no change. This is, you know, we should be looking at this. The market should be looking at this from a, uh, you know, a Jackson Hole kind of language tone perspective as opposed to a July FOMC language tone perspective. We recall in July that they spent the next week after the meeting almost everybody singing from the same song sheet and trying to talk the market down from from moving from moving higher uh, and financial conditions loosening. So you saw equity markets turn pretty significantly around, around that time and uh, and the yield curve flat. And I think that is the right the right uh, question. But it's clear that the Fed remains very very focused on inflation. Um, it's continues to be concerned about the labor market and the tightness of the labor market. Um, the beverage ratio is probably at the top or very near the top of uh, the Fed's dashboard with looking with respect to looking at the labor market and how tight it is. Um, and uh, there are still a lot of job openings for the number of people looking for work. It's almost it's almost two to one. The Fed probably wants to see it closer to 1.2 or 1.3 to one. So there's a lot of froth there. And the Fed is giving up the ghost, not surprisingly, on, I think, on a soft landing scenario. Right. And it's becoming more more I don't want to say comfortable, but more realistic, I guess, around uh, the, the the necessity for the economy to slow down, to have to slow down, the unemployment rate to come up and for there to be a recession, to take the froth out of the job market and to take the froth out of, um, obviously, uh, wages and uh, and inflation. So you saw that in the in the uh, kind of the accompanying things with the dots. So you see the unemployment rate up a fair bit versus the June estimate. I think it, I think in June it looked a little it looked way low. Uh, so it came up in these three months, and I expect that the estimates will continue to move higher. And the Fed's only I mean again it's an estimate, so who knows? But the Fed's only expecting 0.2 percent GDP growth, real GDP growth for this year. Uh, so that's it's pretty slow, and, and and frankly, I think I think the next two or three years had a one handle on it, uh, maybe even uh, maybe a high one handle at, on on the out on the out year in 25. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's the point is it's slow, it's slow growth. So, you know, Fed Fed is looking to slow the economy down, and obviously, it does not want to cause a recession. It does not want to see people out of work. But I think it believes that it needs to do those things to 
take the froth out of uh, you know the, the labor market wages um and, and, uh, and ultimately inflation and inflation at these levels will just not stand will just not stand and uh yeah and so that's that so we'll see kind of what the what the follow-through is but uh looking at the november you know november pricing at least this morning it was around 70 basis points for the market um I, mean, I think that's accurate we only have one nfp uh, employment number and one kind of headline C, like major cpi release between the fed meetings so Okay. What I keep saying to the team is, how much can the narrative actually change? And and, and you know, it's somewhat of a, a uh, uh, you know, a question that you ask yourself. And I would say the answer is not not a whole lot. I don't think that the narrative can evolve that much uh, on one on one piece of data after labor market's been relatively tight, right. and the the uh, the inflation numbers have been relatively tight. So I'm not expecting a huge amount of change. And I think you know, sitting here right now, obviously the data counts, and we'll see how markets perform and uh, financial conditions perform. But I think I think 75 in November, November 2nd, I believe is the meeting, the Wednesday, um, is, uh, is is more much more likely than not. Okay. Um, that's a great summary, uh, Dustin. Thanks for that. Uh, maybe the next question is uh, sort of reflecting on our conversations over the, the years and um, and your views on central banks. And it sounds, it feels like the central bank is catching up to where your view was uh, and that you've been vindicated uh, in uh, a lot of your predictions that you, uh, that you made, despite the fact that when you made them, they, they were uh, not necessarily American consensus. That's hard to do. Yeah. Um, I think you turned her hawkish back in uh, May of last year, for example, yeah. uh, well before uh, uh, most of the market. What's your yeah. process uh, to, to make these calls? How do you get in front of uh, central bank actions and, and think about uh, what the Fed's going to do or Bank of Canada and the like? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an art, it's an art, not a science. And some people sure. would look at it as a bit of a, more of a science than an art. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things that go into it. I think, um, you know, one of the things last year that was clear to a, a number of us that, uh, the, uh, the inflation was not going to be transitory. And then I started bouncing ideas. I mean, it sounds, it sounds hilarious now, but I mean, in the early summer last year, you know, what do you think about coming out of this, not internally, but externally? What do, what do you think about coming out of this? And the Fed has to play a little bit of catch up and maybe we're actually doing 50s instead of 25s. And you right. know, kind of like, ooh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe. <Right. laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of obviously 50s look 50s look like a bit of a, a bit of a joke now, obviously, yeah, kind, right. of, <laughs> kind of kind of ex post. Um, you know, I've been I've been in markets for you know, about 25 years, give or take. And I mean, the first thing about, you know, first thing about doing this, this kind of role is being on a, you know, being on a, a great team and like having, having great support and having, um, you know, teammates that, that challenge you, but, but also kind of res- like kind of respect the view and, you know, management, you know, Stephen Constantine are, you know, wonderful and uh, kind of give, give me a little bit of latitude to kind of do what I do and take previous experience and, and kind of leverage that. And, uh, you know, we have a bit of a, a, a qualitative and quantitative framework that, that, that comes in. And I think frameworks, frameworks are important. I have a, I have a framework for, for the fed, uh, in, in a nutshell, which is, um, uh, you know, the, the fed, the fed has, it's like a juggler with four balls. So you kind of have the two, the two that are given by Congress, which is, um, 
you know, obviously uh, inflation or price stability, however you want to look at it, and, and full employment. And then the two that the Fed has effectively given itself, which is, you know, financial conditions and what I would call kind of, I mean, it recognizes it's the, it's, it is the global central bank by default. And it's, uh, you know, so the global economic outlook, for lack of a better term. So those, those kind of four things and the Fed's always kind of juggling those. So kind of looking at how those four balls, you know, are, you know, are in the air, but, you know, kind of beyond the framework, um, just having the right, having the right inputs, whether that's the quantitative side from a data perspective. And, you know, one of the things I think we've been on this year um, is, you know, the, the, the alternative CPI stuff. So, you know, on these podcasts, we talk about the Dallas Fed and, you know, the Dallas Fed core trim mean PCE and, and the, and the Cleveland Fed and beverage ratio and all these things, trying to really understand, you know, what, what lenses our central banks or the Fed or the BOC, what are they looking at? And it's important, I think, to go into their shoes as opposed to saying, you know, they should, you know, this this bank should do this because the economy is doing this, and that's not necessarily the what's going to happen, right? What I think right. it's, you know, what what should they do and what will they do are are different things, and that that's definitely taken me. I would say a little bit of time over the years to kind of understand and massage. So it's, you know, what should, what should they be doing? You kind of look at, you kind of look at the model and say, okay, well, they're way behind, but you kind of look at the politics behind it and how, and, and what, what, you know, what will they do, I think is, you know, much more of an art. And that's, and that's definitely where a lot of, I would say our, our sourcing and our contacts come in. And, you know, we talk to a lot of people, you know, in the market at banks who are, you know, just amazing and understand the data way better than I do. And, uh, uh, you know, sources that, uh, you know, that, that try to understand, kind of uh, understand uh, the Fed's thinking and, you know, put it through kind of our own sausage sausage machine, so to speak, and, and try to understand what, what's coming out the other side and where the, the balance of probabilities are and where the risks are. And then, of course, kind of beyond that, getting the call rights, great, but then you kind of want to obviously get the market, uh, you know, the market reaction call correct. And obviously within a portfolio context, you know, structure it within the portfolio context and obviously put it on from a, uh, you know, what's the best way to, me- to to message that that view? Is it just kind of straight spot? Is it is it options? Is it derivatives? Um, you know, are there a few ways to kind of message it? Is the is the obvious one maybe already overdone? Do you want to kind of do something that might be kind of a secondary that isn't as priced? So there's a lot of a lot of ways to look at it, but um, you know, but again, like having a great team, you know, around and uh, great, you know, good market contacts and and great and great counterparties. I mean, the you know the one of the great things about McKenzie is that everyone likes to, you know, do business with us. And uh, we've great, we have great counterparties that, that are exceptionally supportive in terms of information flow, whether it's just kind of day-to-day week-to-week flow uh, in terms of how markets are going or doing bespoke stuff for us. If, if we need some help, you know, like uh, some, 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 I don't want, I don't want to mention them by name because I'm going to probably upset people, but uh, you know, people have done work for us on, uh, on the CPI fixing uh, stuff and have been very, very, very helpful in terms of kind of understanding where the inflation path in the U.S. might be going. So, you know, all those things kind of come together. And so it's a bit more of an art than a science. But, you know, we've been, you know, I think a little bit lucky uh, and, and a little bit good on just kind of staying ahead of the call here. And, uh, you know, we're probably getting to the later part of the cycle in terms of hikes, unless we're unless we're really in trouble on inflation and we're talking kind of four and a half in Canada and five and Fed funds on, you know, U.S. plus. But, um 
you know, so now I think it gets a little more, a little more interesting in terms of how, how the cycle finishes up. So we're kind of entering, I think a, a bit of a, a bit of a new era, but, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the frameworks are all still very much in place. So, uh, yeah, I know it's been a really, been a really interesting year. I mean, probably, probably one of the more fascinating years of, of my career. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely looking forward to, to 2023 and, you know, the, the higher for longer theme and just how long that higher for longer actually lasts. Right. That's uh that's great. I appreciate the context on that. And, uh, I love the sort of art and science coming together to, to produce the, the output. Um, I want to turn uh, back to Canada if we can uh, sure. and just uh, get your opinion on sort of the outlook for Canada. You know, you, you laid out the fed hiking uh, path, uh, Bank of Canada is, is under the same pressures. Uh, do you expect the same thing out of it? And just generally, what should we be thinking about in Canada? So I would say the fixed income team has had some very good and interesting discussions over the last two or three weeks, four weeks around uh, Canada in particular. You know, and I, and I, I am as guilty as this as anybody, you know, having spent a lot of time living and working in the U.S., but, you know, we spent a lot of time on the U.S. and the Fed, and I don't think that that's wrong per se, but sometimes it does, I, I do, even myself, like get a bit, bit tunnel vision. And I think, um, you know, one of the discussion points we've had on the team here over the last few weeks is um, the idea that because of the way the Canadian economy is made up, and I think everybody knows, like, you know, very, you know, housing market's very important to the economy here, uh, more than the U.S. Uh, the general household, the average household is generally much more leveraged here than in the U.S. Like many, 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 many or most U.S. households deleverage significantly after GFC in 07, 08, right. 09. Here, it's a bit different. Um and you know, construction and housing and uh, you know, real estate and all those things are a bigger percentage of the Canadian economy than it is in the U.S. And so it's a little more what we would call higher beta or cyclical and you know, and all that sort of thing. So we had this view for much, uh, frankly, since late last year, that the BOC would probably not outhawk the Fed. And then for a good chunk of this year, the market was pricing the BOC to be more aggressive to outhawk. The Fed, which we, right. you know, for a long time I thought, okay, do I have this wrong? What am I missing? The market has flipped back in the last three or four weeks, and I think the market is coming to this kind of foundational idea view that it can't, the BOC cannot raise rates as high as the Fed for, you know, some of the reasons, you know, I just I just mentioned a minute ago, and. If you kind of look at the world in a, at least the markets that we trade a lot, which are, you know, I would say Canada, US, Eurozone, kind of ECB Eurozone and Japan, we obviously trade a lot more than that, but just to, for simplicity's sake, you know, Canada dumped the QE program, very, its quantitative easing program very, very early and started doing right. the quantitative tightening program earlier, right? So it, it did that and then started hiking rates and then, you know, uh, U.S. was after that, not far behind, but after that, Europe was kind of after that, and Japan, well, Japan is still very much after that and hasn't really, sure. <laughs> you know, still effectively that's doing QE and, and not <laughs> yeah. hiking rates. Um, so that's, you know, so that's kind of the uh, the tightening phase, right? And I'm not advocating for cuts in any way, you know, imminently, but, you know, what is that, but what is the next part of, we're starting to think on the team, like, what is the next part of the cycle look like? And if Canada can lead on the tightening side, can it lead and should it lead 
on the easing side, partially because of the makeup of what's driving the economy, the housing and all that sort of thing that we that I talked about right. a minute ago. So we think that there is a, a kind of stepping back for one sec. We think there's a, a we believe in the higher for longer rate perspective. Central banks will have to hold rates at higher levels, terminal rate levels for longer uh, to stamp out inflation. And that's increasing the risk of, uh, I would say, a global economic slowdown slash recession and increasing the probability of hard landing. And if Canada is a high beta economy, which which we believe it is, and I would say most people believe it is, sure. um, then the cyclicality of that means that Canada could be at risk and we could see things kind of turning over in Canada more and qu- more quickly than than in the US. So it's probably a little early to be fair, but um, you know, so as an example, the last three employment d- numbers in Canada have been negative, have had a ne- you know, have been negative something. Right. Not, they're not massive negative prints to be fair, but they have been negative. You know, juxtapose that with what's happening in the US, still pretty, pretty solid. On the inflation side, yes, the notional inflation numbers here are still very high, for sure. But they have come off significantly on the headline over the last two months, and there's reasons for that. And the core numbers also seems to be kind of coming off here. I would also say a little bit quicker than in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So going back to kind of where I started it, you know, there is this danger of looking at the U.S. and then saying, okay, well, that's probably what's going to happen in Canada. And that is often the case, but not always the case. And we could be on the cusp of, of a of a market period of time where it may not always be the case. And so we are, I would say, gently stepping into buying some long Canada sovereign duration um, across some of our funds. Um Particularly in uh, in some of the global and uh, and and unconstrained, and mm-hmm. I think that um, <clears throat> I think it might it might be a bit early, but at the same time, I do believe in this theory that um, you kind of had Canada, U.S., Europe, and Japan to a point, uh, you know, tightening, um, and it'll probably come off the same way as well. And so I think Canada, as a I think what I want what I want our listeners and, and investors to take away from this is. You know, can Canada be a uh, a leader, so to speak, kind of in terms of market uh, uh, market pricing, uh, and maybe the kind of the general economic outlook in terms of the like the out like the outside um, or the outflight of what's happening with the global tightening cycle? And I think it can. Um, and so we're treating Canada. I mean, we always treat it differently because we sit here and you know we. Right. Importantly, you know, obviously, sit, sit in Canada, and you know that's you know that that's a major part of our book. But I think we were probably treating it even more, uh, more specially, so to speak, or you know, uh, more different than usual, uh, because we think it can be a bit of a leading indicator globally in terms of how the global economic outlook and global economic sentiment um, you know, transitions here in in 23, and that that whole. You know, idea might prove wrong, but it's a theory that I think the team is generally wrapping its arms around, and I and I think that uh, it's, I think it's something that um, has a lot of, has a lot of validity, and so we are starting uh, very early, but we are starting to set up some of our portfolios to kind of message that message that view and try and take advantage of that view. Hmm. Uh, very interesting. Uh, the I guess the other. Um 
chew that would come from that, uh, or as I think about it, simplistically call it, uh, is is currency. Uh, currency is a right. call that you have to make every time you buy something outside of Canada. Obviously, yeah. being a, a Canadian domicile fund, US right. dollar has been on just in a right. quite the tear. Um, Based on your outlook for Canada over the midterm, it would suggest that the U.S. dollar has further appreciation to go because it'd be they'd be aggressive uh, in hiking. Is that the right conclusion that I should be taking, or is it too simplistic? No, I think I think you're right. Um, we've had a pretty good run higher in dollar Canada, so U.S. dollar appreciation, Canadian dollar depreciation, even over the last few weeks, as. Uh, you know, we've seen the terminal rates for the from the market for the two banks diverge, and there's other things going on there, but I'm sure. not sure where it is as we speak. Speak, but this morning there was about 55 basis points difference between um, between uh, the Fed and the market pricing for the Fed and the market pricing for the BOC in terms of where rates would end up and the, the terminal rate, the policy rate. I mean, they were basically even two weeks ago, so that's a pretty big. That's a pretty big divergence in, in a relatively right. short period of time. And that's been part of the driver. You know, rate rate differentials are all obviously generally a driver. I, I generally look, you know, I've like talking about framework earlier for Fed, I've kind of a framework for the Canadian dollar as well. And and generally at the top of that list, generally is just global risk sentiment. You know, do you sure. think that uh, you know, uh, I mean, you can use ex- equities as a proxy or, or even kind of credit slash high yield as a proxy. Uh, you know, if, if equities are selling off, high yields widening, then generally, generally, Canadian dollar is probably depreciating, depreciating right. um, against the U.S. dollar and and vice versa. And I think, you know, with the hawkish rhetoric from the Fed and market repricing, global economic slowdown, risk of a hard, higher, harder landing, you're seeing Canadian dollar depreciate. So I'm, I'm not surprised that that relationship seems to be seems to be holding up. I think. Um, you know, one of the things we've had on in terms of currency plays within the portfolio broadly, I'd say across almost every fund, almost almost all funds, is we've been long dollar CAD. So we've had the open position, uh, not massive in terms of exposure, but decent, um, uh, kind of average to average plus ish um, in terms of leaving leaving the currency open. So, uh, so we would be, you know, we would be kind of winning, for lack of a better term, or gaining on. Uh, you know, on appreciating uh, U.S. dollar versus the Canadian dollar, so that's been a pretty good trade for us over the last few weeks or or month or two, month and a half maybe. Um, and I do think that you know, if you believe that equities or, or risk is fragile here, and you think that equities and and credit, especially high yield, is going to be uh, at risk here uh, on the risk of a, a, a harder landing and rates higher for longer, um, then generally speaking, the Canadian dollar could could see further depreciation. The, uh, I mean, looking at every currency pair, and I've, you know, earlier in my career, I spent a lot of time, you know, on FX, on FX teams, on currency teams. And what's interesting and fun about currencies is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's obvious, but it's worth saying you, you have, when you sell one, you have to buy another, right. <laughs> right? You can't just, you can't just leave it. It generally has to be in, in something. Right. And, I think the world is currently at a point where and maybe it doesn't love dollars, uh, U.S. dollars, but what's what's your alternative here? And because you have to be somewhere, so what what is that other what's that other currency? And I I still don't have a good uh, second secondary currency at this point. I think that's one of the reasons why the dollar has remained so bid. And I, I do think even that that trade is uh, that that trade is crowded. Um, I think there are a lot of people in the long dollar trade. But it's continuing to go, and generally, when positions are extended, I, you know, I I do get a little bit nervous. But this one, 
this one continues to go. And I think the rate spread story is helpful. I think the global risk sentiment story and the outlook story is, is helpful. I mean, oil, obviously not trading overly, you know, overly uh, bullish over the last few months is probably, you know, not helpful for the Canadian dollar. Sure. So, you know, I think that uh, I think the direction of recent direction of travel for dollar CAD is probably, um, you know, probably uh, the same. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, even even at 135 in the round, which is, you know, we hit that we traded that today for the first time in many, many years. Um, I think I think we can continue continue to move higher. But I think, you know, again, it's not just a, can, a Canada story, although kind of what I was saying on Canada with the last question is definitely a driver for that. But it's a dollar story, too. And I think there's a not 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 wild, but I think there's a a bit of a scramble for dollars, U.S. dollars going on globally here. You can kind of just feel it with the sentiment turning and global economic turning and liquidity and generally speaking, not always, but generally it's a bit of a bid for dollars when you have when you have those those sort of things. So the dollar side of the equation is, is also is also pushing. And you can see it in euro dollar. You can see it in sterling dollar. Uh, you can see it in the kind of the other commodity currencies that are often lumped together with Canadian dollar, like Australia and New Zealand. You can see it in EM currencies. Um, the dollar is definitely bid. And uh, so it's a dollar story as well, not just a Canadian dollar story. But I do I do continue to like it higher here with obviously, again, the big caveat that a lot of people are, are already in the trade. And as we like to say, you generally need to find incremental buyers or incremental sellers, depending which way you want to go. But in this case, sure. incremental buyers to uh, continue to see that price action, um, you know, move in, move in that direction. But I think we will, I think we will see that as um, as the bank here remains relatively uh, relatively easy versus the Fed, um, and as global risk sentiment, I think, continues to deteriorate uh, into year end. That's great. Uh, maybe uh, we'll uh, finish up on uh, some positioning in, in portfolios. Uh, sure. You mentioned that uh, you're going out a little bit, uh, sort of sounds like the tentative start of a, a larger trade potentially on uh, longer sovereigns within Canada. Right. Uh, what else do you have uh, uh, putting on in the portfolios? Yeah, exactly. So I would say that the uh, the Canada long end Canada trade is is one that that we're very interested in. Being long dollar Canada, obviously, is uh, you know one we're interested. In. We're not not necessarily playing it via a lot of options um, because volatility is pretty expensive. Um, right. So we're just kind of opening up the. Uh, the exposure really, um, the hedge exposure. Um, we've been cleaning up our 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 credit book, uh, you know, pretty significantly over the summer. I think we've talked a little bit about this. We've reduced our loan exposure a little bit. We've been reducing our, our high yield exposure a little bit. Um, right. Kind of taking, you know, upping our credit credit quality, so to speak. Just kind of again going the baseline being that okay, global economic slowdown, risk of a harder landing. Uh, rates higher for longer, you know, it's kind of worried about, you know, th- those sorts of things and, and kind of the, the impact that would have maybe on the credit market. So kind of just moving up, moving up the, the scale a little bit on, on the credit side. So we continue to do that. Uh, we still like to, um, although it's expensive now, but um, these uh, short, being short, the short end of the curve, whether it's uh, the US or Canada or, or the European curve via the German benchmark have been you know, have been have been great trades uh, right. this year, obviously, and you know, kind of been in and out of that a few times. Um, you know, but shorting something at you know 50 basis points is a lot different than shorting something at 150 basis points. Obviously, a lot more sure. expensive, to, a lot more expensive to do so, right? As it moves higher, so um, so that's 
uh, so we still like those, but there's probably not as much juice left in just the aggregate in those trades, and the cost of carry is more expensive. So, you know, sitting here and putting on my strategy hat, you know, do I like the curve, the you know, twos, tens in the U.S. inverting further from minus 55 to maybe minus 60 or 65? Yeah, I, I do, but I recognize that it's expensive to put that on, um, right. you know, from from a front end short. Uh, you know, perspective. Uh, the the European side, the German side, probably represents the best value of those three. Still, I think, um, just in terms of, of cost and and the direction of travel here, likely over the next the next um, six to twelve months. So yeah, so I do, you know, do I do like that. Um, but yeah, we also continue to like this um, <clears throat> this uh, JGB, the Japanese government bond trade, where we think that uh, at some point here uh, that. Uh, the bank will need to kind of give up the ghost and uh, dump its yield curve control program. The Bank of Japan, obviously, the Bank of Japan intervened in the FX market this week for the first time since 1998 and had at least initially a very, very significant impact. It was a little earlier than I expected. They intervened around 145 and a half in dollar yen, and I kind of thought it might be around 147, but uh, but we kind of got the price action. The problem with that is that there you can't have uh, it's called basically called the trifecta. You you really can't have free capital flows, uh, cap your 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 interest rates, um, your yield curve, and uh, and 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 have and have the currency uh, go in and have the currency not weaken. So something there has to give, and they right. are kind of trying to have it both ways, and that's going to be a very very expensive. Uh, lesson for the, for the BOJ. So at some point, you know, maybe sooner rather than later, who knows? Um, they could dump their yield curve control program, and you know, the cost of carry of that is not not massive, especially through futures. So we like we like to keep that on the books in case there's a, you know, an overnight surprise like we got with the intervention, uh, <laughs> like we got with the intervention uh, in the FX space overnight uh, overnight this week. So it's good it's good to have those positions on. Dustin, thanks so much for uh, spending the time and walking us through the most recent events in fixed income markets. Uh, very useful. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks a lot for having me, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.